0: Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm your host, Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Guardian newspaper, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The St. Louis American, The Emory Wheel, The Catholic News Agency, and The Telegraph newspaper of India. And we're going to start off today's program with a short story about healthcare. This is from the PRNewsWire.com website. The title is The American Diabetes Association and Genentech Partner to Increase Equitable Access to Eye Healthcare. It was published March 20th, 2023, and was written by Rebecca Fisher. The subtitle to the story is Project Aims to Remove Barriers to Care to Help Prevent Vision Loss. The American Diabetes Association and Genentech, a member of the Roach Group, announced a new partnership as part of the ADA's Health Equity Now work to tackle access to screening and treatment for eye diseases that affect the diabetes community. Diabetes is the leading cause of vision loss in people 18 to 64 years old and African Americans, American Indians, Alaska Natives, Latinos, and older adults living with diabetes are at higher risk of losing their vision or going blind. Comprehensive eye exams play a crucial role in the prevention, early detection, and intervention of eye disease and vision loss caused by diabetes. Yet many in these communities either don't receive or don't have appropriate access to eye health care. For people living with diabetes, a regular eye exam is a must to prevent or delay vision loss caused by diabetes, says Charles Henderson. Chief Executive Officer of the ADA. Sadly, health inequities have led to many people not receiving the eye care and treatment they need. Through this community-based program made possible by Genentech, we will identify the barriers to eye health, address those barriers and support community awareness through screenings and education. The programming will kick off with a pilot in Birmingham, Alabama, in collaboration with community partners to conduct focus groups with African-Americans to understand the barriers to eye health in underrepresented communities and provide resources, including education and screenings, to address these barriers. Learnings from this pilot will inform future collaborative work between the ADA and Genentech to improve health equity and eye care for people living with diabetes. Health disparities are a deep-rooted and systemic challenge, said Alexander Hardy, Chief Executive Officer of Genentech. Genentech is proud to support the ADA's Health Equity Now program as an important step forward in driving better eye care for all patients. This builds on our commitment to address inequities by advancing inclusive research in ophthalmology, expanding diversity in the field, and improving equitable access to care. This partnership brings together the ADA's and Genentech's shared dedication to health equity and longstanding commitment to people living with diabetes-related eye disease. A pioneer in the field, Genentech continues to research and develop treatments for conditions such as diabetic macular edema, DME, and diabetic retinopathy, which can cause visual impairment and blindness if left untreated. In 2022, Genentech launched Elevatum, a first of its kind study with one of its medicines in underrepresented patients with DME. That was the article The American Diabetes Association and Genentech Partnered to Increase Equitable Access to Eye Health Care. It was written by Rebecca Fisher and appeared at the PRNewsWire.com website on March 20, 2023, at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The next story on today's program is about Vice President Harris's most recent trip to Africa. The title is, U.S. Vice President Harris Visits Her Indian Grandfather's House in Zambia. This was found at the TelegraphIndia.com website, which is the website for the Telegraph newspaper of India. The subtitle is, Born in Chennai in 1911, Gopalan was an advisor to first president of Zambia, Kenneth Kaunda, and served as Joint Secretary to the Government of India in the 1960s. This article was written by the Telegraph staff and was published April 1, 2023. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris remembered her maternal grandfather, P.V. Gopalan, capital G-O-P-A-L-A-N, and visited his family house in Zambia's capital, Lusaka, where he lived as an Indian Foreign Service official in the 1960s during her trip to the African country. Born in Chennai in 1911, Gopalan was an advisor to first president of Zambia, Kenneth Kaunda, and served as joint secretary to the government of India in the 1960s. My visit to Zambia has a special significance for me, as many of you know, and for my family. As you know, I visited Zambia, Mr. President, as a young girl when my grandfather worked here, Harris told reporters in Lusaka at a joint news conference with the Zambian president, Hakainde Hichilema, Hichilema. In 1966, shortly after Zambia's independence, he came to Lusaka to serve as the Director of Relief Measures and Refugees. That was his title. He served as an advisor to Zambia's first president, Kenneth Kaunda, and he was an expert on refugee resettlement, she said. While in Lusaka in the 1960s, Gopelon lived at 16 Independence Avenue, where 58-year-old Harris visited as a little girl. Though the numbering of addresses has changed and the location was ultimately identified using plot numbers in public records and land surveys, according to a White House official. I remember my time here fondly. I was a child, so it is the memory of a child. But I remember being here and just how it felt, the warmth and the excitement that was present, Harris said. She says she spoke to her aunt recently, who reminded her of the relationships she made while working at a hospital in Lusaka. So from my family and from all of us, we extend our greetings and hello to everyone here, Harris added. Gopalan was deputy to the government of Zambia as the director of relief measures and refugees in January 1966 by the Indian government. To perform these duties, he relinquished his role as the head of the office of the Joint Secretary in the Ministry of Rehabilitation. He resumed charge of the office of the Joint Secretary to the Government of India in the Ministry of Rehabilitation in July 1969 on reversion from the government of Zambia. He helped Zambia manage an influx of refugees from southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. After much effort, the U.S. Embassy in Lusaka, while working with the vice president's office, located the spot they believe Gopalan lived. It was the land where his house was, not the structure which is no longer there, the White House official said. The U.S. Embassy in Lusaka pursued research to identify the location of this home, including going through public records, engaging with Zambian and Indian authorities, and speaking with those who worked in the Zambian government at the time, said the official, on condition of anonymity. In addition, members of the vice president's family provided recollections about the home which aided the search. After much work by the embassy and dead ends in the search, the embassy identified this location only a few days ago while the vice president was in Accra, Ghana, the official said. Ultimately, the Zambian Ministry of Lands, with assistance from others, identified 16 Independence Avenue as the Gopalan family home as recorded in a public lands document dated March 9, 1967. The property now belongs to Madison Group, a Zambian group of companies that include Madison General Insurance and Madison Financial. Harris, the daughter of an Indian mother and Jamaican father, is the first Black and first Asian American woman vice president of the U.S. She made history when she was sworn in as the 49th U.S. vice president on January 20, 2021. Her mother, Shyamala Gopalan, came to the U.S. from Chennai to study science, specifically endocrinology and complex mechanisms of cancer. Her father, Donald, grew up in Jamaica, where he became a national scholar and studied economics. Harris was born in Oakland, California. That was the article, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris Visits Her Indian Grandfather's House in Zambia. This appeared at the TelegraphIndia.com website. It was written by the Telegraph of India staff and was published April 1st, 2023. The next story on today's program is about religion. It's from the Catholic News Agency and its CatholicNewsAgency.com website. The title is Meet the Six American Black Catholics Who Are on the Road to Sainthood. It was written by Jim Graves and published February 28, 2023 at 1255 p.m. Among the history revisited for Black History Month, Catholics would do well to recall that there are currently six African-American Catholics who are on the path to sainthood. Archbishop Timothy Broglio of the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, who serves as president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, recalled these holy lives last month, stating, for models of lives transformed, we can always turn to the saints. To this end, the USCCB has advanced beatification and canonization causes of six inspirational African-American men and women, Venerable Pierre Toussaint, Servant of God Mary Lang, Venerable Henry DeLille, Venerable Augustus Tolton, Servant of God Julia Greeley, and Sister Thea Bowman. Among the best known of these six is Father Augustus Tolton, 1854-1897, the first recognized American black priest. His name is spelled capital T-O-L-T-O-N. He was born a slave in Missouri and escaped to Quincy, Illinois, through the Underground Railroad. Some Irish priests recognized he had a vocation to the priesthood, so he studied in Rome and was ordained a priest. He returned to Illinois, serving much of the time in Chicago before his death at age 43. Despite having endured prejudice and obstacles to ordination, he remained committed to Christ. I believe Tolton says something about how we handle disappointment in our lives. Protracted disappointment and how we struggle with that, companion with the inspiration that comes from our Christian faith, Auxiliary Bishop Joseph Perry of Chicago, postulator of Tolton's cause for canonization, told the Register via email. He continued, Despite the suffering endemic to 19th century America and its ambivalence about the presence and participation of black people in our democracy, Tolton proved a priest-servant to any and everyone, white, black, brown, etc., but met up repeatedly with objection and resentment from individuals and corridors of our society and the church. The cross of Jesus impresses itself upon our lives in more ways than are comfortable for us, but we believe in the resurrection, Perry added. Salvation is constantly working itself out in our lives. To know Christ and his kingdom is to arrive there with our faith, hope, and love intact. Father Tolton gave himself completely to the church in response to God's invitation to share his life and love. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, author of Father Augustus Tolton, the slave who became the first African-American priest told the Register of the Venerable. He is a role model for all those who seek to be configured more perfectly to Christ. Father Tolta's life bears witness to the trust that when we freely, willingly, and lovingly place all our trust in God, then we will find true happiness and peace. Among the best-known women American black candidates for sainthood is Venerable Henriette Delille, 1813 to 1862, founder of the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans. Her name is spelled capital D-E, capital L-I-L-L-E. She was born in New Orleans. Her father was from France, and her mother was a free woman of African descent. She applied to both the Ursuline and Carmelite communities but was rejected, so she used her family money to found her own community, which cared for the sick and poor as well as open schools. She is the first native-born American of African descent whose cause for canonization was opened. Father Josh Johnson, a priest of the Diocese of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who formerly taught theology of the body catechists, at the Sisters of the Holy Family St. Mary's Academy in New Orleans, explained to the Register that both Tolton and DeLille were inspirations for him in my walk toward eternity. Both of these holy witnesses were devoted to Jesus Christ and the Blessed Sacrament and the poorest of the poor, he said. Even though they were persecuted by many of the leaders in the Catholic Church during their lifetime for no other reason than because of the color of their skin, they both continued to glorify God by pouring themselves out in ministry for the salvation of souls. He noted that Tolton's example inspired him to do a daily holy hour. He added, It is amazing how the witness of the saints continues to bear supernatural fruit in the 21st century. In 2016, Denver Archbishop Samuel Aquila, capital A-Q-U-I-L-A, opened the cause for canonization of servant of God Julia Greeley, a freed slave from Missouri who died in 1918. She moved to Denver, converted to the Catholic faith, and was known for pulling around a red wagon filled with items, such as food, clothing, and firewood, which she would give to the poor. Father Blaine Berkey, Greeley's biographer, told the Register, she loved others, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, and providing fuel for their homes. If someone was sick, she'd come to the house and help take care of them. In describing Greeley, Berkey cited the words of Fellowship of Catholic University Students founder Curtis Martin, born a slave, half-blind, poor, the object of racism and alone, Julia simply lived the gospel of Jesus Christ and loved. Even though she had very little of the world's material blessings to share, she gathered what she could and shared all that she had from a heart completely transformed by Christ. What most impresses him about Greeley, Berkey continued, is the largesse of her extending Christ's love in salvific response to the life of crosses others had laid on her. Servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman 1937 to 1990, is a Catholic convert from Mississippi. She was a teacher, public speaker, musician, and woman religious who founded the National Black Sisters Conference. The Diocese of Jackson opened the cause for her canonization in 2018. Mary Woodward, Chancellor of the Diocese of Jackson, told the Register that Bowman was a tower of strength and powerful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ she continually labored to bring people to the table to learn more about the dynamic role of African-American spirituality in the church, especially liturgical spirituality. She was tireless in her efforts to raise an awareness among African-American Catholics of their inherent worth in the church and their unique gifts to the church, she continued. Venerable Pierre Toussaint, 1766 to 1853, was born in Haiti, and came to New York City as a slave. His name is spelled capital T-O-U-S-S-A-I-N-T. He became a hairdresser. He prospered and was able to secure his freedom. He was a daily communicant and with his wife, Mary Rose Juliet, engaged in a variety of charitable works. New York's Cardinal John O'Connor initiated his cause for canonization in 1991 and Toussaint was declared venerable by Pope John Paul II in 1996. Toussaint's remains are interred in New York's St. Patrick's Cathedral in the Cathedral Crypt alongside with New York's most prominent Catholic leaders, the only layman afforded this privilege. O'Connor said, He is now buried beneath this high altar with all of the bishops, archbishops, and cardinals of New York. It will be a great privilege for me to be buried in a vault in the same section with Pierre Toussaint. Servant of God, Mary Elizabeth Lang, 1789 to 1882, was born in Cuba and immigrated to Baltimore. Her name is spelled capital L-A-N-G-E. With a friend, she opened a school for black children. She became the founder and superior general of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, the first congregation of women religious for women of African heritage. In 1991, Baltimore's Cardinal William Keeler introduced her cause for canonization. The Mother Mary Lane Guild notes in an online biography that Mother Mary Lane practiced faith to an extraordinary degree. In fact, it was her deep faith which enabled her to persevere against all odds. To her black brothers and sisters, She gave up herself and her material possessions until she was empty of all but Jesus, whom she shared generously with all by being a living witness to his teaching. Her legacy lives on in the black religious orders in the U.S. church today. As EWTN's Mark Irons reported on EWTN News in Depth this week, going back to 1863 in the heat of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln declared freedom for many enslaved African Americans with his historic Emancipation Proclamation. But before that, the founder of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, Mother Mary Lang, broke a racial barrier way ahead of her time, and she's now on the path to possible sainthood. Her mission began right here in Baltimore with the founding of this school. More than 30 years before Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, Mother Mary Lang established St. Francis Academy because she believed African-American children had the right to an education. And years later, in 1829, her first group of Oblate Sisters of Providence came together making vows, embracing a life of service to God and the vulnerable in our society, while rejecting racism and accepting those deemed unworthy at the time. That was the article. Meet the Six American Black Catholics Who Are on the Road to Sainthood. It was written by Jim Graves, published February 8, 2023, and it appeared at the catholicnewsagency.com website. The next reading on today's program is from the Emory Wheel newspaper, which is the student newspaper of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. The title is, Former NFL wide receiver, NASA astronaut, speaks on Journey to Outer Space in Emory Lecture. It was written by Sophia Hawley and published March 21, 2023. Emory University hosted former National Football League wide receiver and NASA Associate Administrator for Education, Leland Melvin, as part of the annual Goodrich C. White Lecture on March 17th. The event was virtually open to university community members and featured an audience Q&A portion. Titled Chasing Space, Melvin's speech centered on his journey to outer space in February 2008 and the obstacles he faced. He said he hopes his story can inspire others to come together for the survival of our civilization. Melvin attributed the start of his journey to former U.S. President John F. Kennedy's 1961 goal of sending humans to the moon and back within the next decade. The same year, Martin Luther King Jr. consoled the Freedom Riders after they were attacked in the Deep South. Melvin noted that there was a juxtaposition between the beginning of the mission to the moon, one of the most technologically advanced events at the time, and people fighting to secure their basic rights throughout the country. A few years later, Melvin watched as Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon on July 21, 1969. I was five years old when the moon landing happened, Melvin said. I was the antenna engineer. I was holding the rabbit ears on the black and white Sylvania television set so my parents and my sister could watch One Small Step for Man live. However, Melvin noted, Though most of the children at the time were fantasizing about being Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, he wanted to be professional tennis player Arthur Ashe, who won three Grand Slam singles titles during the course of his career. Melvin said he was inspired by Robert Walter Johnson, who trained Ashe and was the first African-American physician to receive the right to practice medicine at Lynchburg General Hospital, where Melvin was born. Throughout the lecture, Melvin referenced the children's book, Curious George, which his mother read to him as a child. He used the phrase man or woman in a yellow hat to describe people who helped him along his journey and encouraged his chase. Think about all the things that Curious George did where he got in trouble, Melvin said. He always had the man in the yellow hat who had his back. These yellow hats included his parents and former high school football coach, Jimmy Green, who he credits for his $180,000 football scholarship to the University of Richmond. During the football recruitment process, Melvin dropped a touchdown pass in front of a Richmond scout. Instead of taking him out of the game, Melvin said Green gave him a second chance and encouraged him to try again. I went from catching a pass at a homecoming game to now going to Richmond and can officially blow things up as a chemistry major, Melvin said. Incredible, right? Melvin graduated and was drafted by the Detroit Lions in 1986, but he pulled his hamstring shortly after and was later released from the team. He briefly played for the Canadian Football League's Toronto Argonauts and signed with the Dallas Cowboys for the 1987 football season, but he re-injured his hamstring, ending his football career. Two years later, Melvin began working at the Non-Destructive Evaluation Sciences Branch at the NASA Langley Research Center, before being selected to be an astronaut in April 1998. He reported for training in August 1998 at the Sonny Carter Training Facility's Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory in Houston. During spacewalk training, where astronauts practice working in atmospheres resembling zero gravity by walking underwater, Melvin entered the pool without a key piece on his helmet meant to protect his ears from the pressure 20 feet underwater. When he got out of the pool, he was completely deaf. After undergoing emergency surgery, Melvin said he was told that he would never fly in space. Despite this setback, he continued to work for NASA, hoping he would still be able to go to space. This was due in part to the encouragement of former NASA administrator Daniel Golden, another one of Melvin's men in a yellow hat. Melvin eventually regained some of his hearing back in his right ear. Although still considered medically disqualified, he stuck with NASA educating children in the agency's educator-astronaut program in Washington, D.C. Then, on his drive home from NASA's headquarters on February 3, 2003, he received a call from a staff member in the program telling him that NASA's space shuttle Columbia was late to its expected landing time. The shuttle was destroyed as it returned to Earth, killing the seven astronauts on board, all of whom were Melvin's friends. Among the astronauts was David Brown, a flight surgeon who had been working to get Melvin back to flight status. When Melvin consoled Brown's parents on the night of the accident, he said that Brown's father encouraged him to continue his work with NASA. He says, my son is gone. There's nothing you can do to bring him back, Melvin said. The biggest tragedy would be if we don't continue to fly in space to honor their legacy, He's already thinking about the legacy of his son and the crew and what we have to do to honor that. And I was shored up with so much emotion and resilience and grit to figure out how I'm going to fly in space to honor the legacy because I'm not medically qualified to fly. This conversation drove Melvin to figure out how to fly in space to honor that legacy. Former NASA Chief Health and Medical Officer Richard Williams was Melvin's ultimate man in a yellow hat. Williams, who was the head of all flight surgeons, told Melvin that he believed he could go to space, defying other world-renowned doctors and surgeons. Melvin later traveled back to Houston and was assigned his first mission to serve on board the space shuttle Atlantis in February 2008. One person is all it took to believe in me, Melvin said. Melvin boarded space shuttle Atlantis in February 2008 with the goal of installing the European Space Agency's Columbus Laboratory on the International Space Station. As the shuttle arrived and first attached to the space station, Melvin said that he knew he was doing something really powerful. His crew was invited to the Russian segment of the space station to have a meal while orbiting Earth at 17,500 miles per hour, and seeing sunrise and sunset every 45 minutes with people from Russia and Germany. During their meal, the astronauts each took turns looking out at their hometowns, speculating about what their parents might be doing at that moment and listening to music together. Melvin described the cognitive shift he felt in that moment, known as the overview effect. You see, everyone that was, is, and will be on planet Earth, Melvin said. We had this moment. It was so surreal, it changed my life. Melvin noted that even places with unrest seemed tranquil and beautiful from above. When you look at the planet at night, you see the footprint of humanity. You see sodium vapor lights. You see incandescent lights, Melvin said. You see all these lights. You see fires in places in Africa where people are convening, having a meal telling stories that are beautiful and rich to figure out how their kids will go to school or what they want to do with their lives. After his expedition, he returned to NASA to run their education programs. In building these programs, he said he focused on creating lessons that spark passion in children. In closing, he reminded audience members to look toward the men or women in yellow hats in their lives. That's what it takes, people doing things that are much bigger than their individual selves doing it with their men and women in the yellow hat, believing in themselves and rising to that next level, Melvin said. That was the article, Former NFL Wide Receiver, NASA Astronaut Speaks on Journey to Outer Space in Emory Lecture. It was written by Sophia Holly, published March 21, 2023, and it appeared at the emorywheel.com website. The next story I have for you today is about business, and it comes from the St. Louis American newspaper. The title is Record Number of Blacks Running Fortune 500 Companies. It was published March 14, 2023, and it was written by the St. Louis American staff. According to Forbes, there will be a record number of black CEOs running Fortune 500 companies. Black Enterprise reported that Chris Womack has been named the next CEO of utility giant Southern Company, the first black person to sit in that seat. Southern Company supports nine million customers and businesses nationwide with electric utilities in three states and natural gas distribution utilities in four and provides wholesale energy, customized distributed energy solutions and fiber optics and wireless communications across the country. Days prior to the announcement, Calvin Butler got the job for CEO of Exelon Corporation, the largest electric parent company in the United States. Exelon is the nation's largest utility company, serving more than 10 million customers through six fully regulated transmission and distribution utilities. Black Enterprise also noted that several other blacks became CEOs of Fortune 500 companies in the past few years. Lloyd Yates became CEO of utility Nysource last year. NYSource, nice Inc. is one of the largest fully registered utility companies in the United States, serving approximately 3.5 million natural gas customers and 500,000 electric customers across six states through its local Columbia Gas and NIPSCO brands. Roslyn Brewer joined Walgreens Boots Alliance, Incorporated as CEO in March 2021. She is also a director on WBA's board. Ms. Brewer most recently served as Chief Operating Officer and Group President at Starbucks from October 2017 to January 2021. Prior to Starbucks, she served as President and Chief Executive Officer of Sam's Club. Marvin Ellison became Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer of Lowe's Companies Incorporated, a Fortune 50 home improvement company with more than 2,000 stores and approximately 300,000 associates in the United States and Canada. Prior to joining Lowe's, Marvin served as chairman and CEO of J.C. Penney Company. Renee Jones became chairman and chief executive officer of m and Bank, a diversified community-focused banking franchise with $200 billion in assets in a network of 1,000 branches across the eastern United States. Craig Arnold is chairman and chief executive officer of Eaton, a power management company doing business in more than 175 countries. And Frank Clyburn has served as CEO of International Flavors and Fragrances since 2022. Previously, he held the role of Executive Vice President and President of Human Health for Merck & Company. That was the article, Record Number of Blacks Running Fortune 500 Companies. It was written by the St. Louis American Staff, published March 14, 2023, and it appeared at the stlamerican.com website. If you've just turned us on, this is the African American Hour. I'm your host, Byron Buckner. The next reading on today's African American Hour is an obituary from the New York Times. The title is, Randall Robinson, Anti-Apartheid Catalyst is Dead at 81. It was written by Sam Roberts and published March 28, 2023. Randall Robinson, a self-described pain victim of stolen identity raised in segregated Virginia who grew up to galvanize Americans against apartheid in South Africa and champion reparations for the descendants of slaves, died on Friday in Basse, capital B-A-S-S-E-T-E-R-R-E, on the Caribbean island of St. Kitts, where he had lived in self imposed exile from the United States for more than two decades. He was 81. His wife, Hazel Ross Robinson, said he died in a hospital from aspiration pneumonia. Born into poverty, Mr. Robinson was raised by loving parents, both teachers. He went on to win a basketball scholarship to college and graduate from Harvard Law School. In 1978, his older brother, Max Robinson, became the first black person to co-anchor the news on National Network TV on ABC's World News Tonight. Mr. Robinson's accomplishments were considerable. Through sit-ins, hunger strikes, and other protests as the president of the lobbying and research organization TransAfrica, as a founder of the Free South Africa Movement, and on behalf of Haitian refugees. In 1984, Representative Don Edwards, a California Democrat, called him the most effective foreign policy catalyst in recent history. But the frustration and resentment he felt over what he viewed as only a grudging acquiescence of the American government and white society to black civil rights and equal opportunity drove him to quit as head of TransAfrica and immigrate in 2001. What have I done with my pain, he asked in his book, Defending the Spirit, A Black Life in America? which was published in 1998, shortly before he and his wife moved to St. Kitts. I am not eager to know, he wrote. I can find no answer of which I can be proud. White-hot hatred would seem the proper reflex, but there is no survival there. In the autumn of my life, I am left with regarding white people before knowing them individually with irreducible mistrust and dull dislike. Unlike his successful campaign for economic sanctions and corporate disinvestment in South Africa, or his 27-day hunger strike that pressured the Clinton administration to open the gates to some Haitian refugees, Mr. Robinson's campaign for widespread reparations on the basis of lineage to the progeny of enslaved African Americans and his embittered expatriation generated a backlash. Reviewing Mr. Robinson's book, Quitting America, the departure of a black man from his native land in the Washington Post, the black author Jake Lamar concluded that, above all, quitting America is a love story, more specifically, a wrenching tale of unrequited love. But Mr. Lamar added, surely America must offer a great many black citizens who have had the opportunity to leave something that they have not found elsewhere. Randall Maurice Robinson was born on July 6, 1941, in Richmond, Virginia, to Maxie and Doris Jones Robinson. Growing up in the segregated South shaped him from the beginning. The insult of segregation was searing and unforgettable, he told the Progressive magazine in 2005. I decided a long time ago to join the social justice movement. It was salvaging. We all have to die, he continued, and I preferred to have just one death. It seems to me that to suffer insult without response is to die many deaths. Mr. Robinson, who is six foot five, won a basketball scholarship to Norfolk State College, now University in Virginia, in 1959, but he left during his junior year and was drafted into the Army. He later attended Virginia Union University, graduating with a bachelor's degree in sociology in 1967 and Harvard Law School, from which he received a degree in 1970. He practiced civil rights law in Boston and won a Ford Foundation Fellowship to work in Tanzania and from 1972 to 1975 directed the Community Development Division of the Roxbury Multiservice Center in Boston. He then moved to Washington to become administrative assistant to Representative Bill Clay, a Missouri Democrat. Mr. Robinson founded TransAfrica in 1977 with the goal of influencing U.S. foreign policy concerning Africa and Caribbean countries. He and other black leaders were arrested during a sit-in in in 1984 at the South African embassy in Washington and later formed the Free South Africa Movement. He was a supporter of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the former Salesian priest who became Haiti's first democratically elected president, but who was overthrown in a coup that sent boatloads of Haitian refugees to the United States beginning in 1991. Mr. Robinson sought to relax the policy of repatriating the refugees to Haiti where many faced reprisals as Aristide supporters. Mr. Aristide was later reinstated, but in 2004 he was ousted in another coup said to have been engineered by France and the United States. Among Mr. Robinson's other books were The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks. Although he continued to live in St. Kitts, he began teaching at the Dickinson School of Law at Pennsylvania State University in 2008. In addition to Miss Ross Robinson, he is survived by a daughter from their marriage, Kalia Ross Robinson, two children from a previous marriage which ended in divorce, Anike Robinson and Jabari Robinson, and two sisters, Jewel Robinson Shepherd and the Reverend Dr. Jean Robinson Casey. Mr. Robinson was instrumental in pressuring the white South African government to end its official policy of racial segregation. His record on some other policy initiatives, however, were mixed. No matter what the outcome, it's worth it always to try, he told the New York Times in 1984. It's better when you're successful, but it's always worth it to try. At home, he strove for perfection in his avocation, woodworking, where the process was more flexible, but the product, for better or worse, could be definitive. In my career work, I can never be sure what the outcome will be, but I have complete control over these projects here, he told the Times. If you're going to carve, If you want to finish it during your lifetime, you want a router. How does one use it? Very careful. You can't put wood back. That was the obituary of Randall Robinson from the New York Times newspaper. It was written by Sam Roberts and published March 28, 2023. Up next on today's program is a story from the Wall Street Journal and its wsj.com website. The title is U.S. Considers Asking Black Americans on Census If They Are Slave Descendants. It was written by Michelle Hackman and Paul Overberg and published March 30, 2023 at 1133 a.m. Eastern Time. The subtitle to this story is Change would help quantify eligibility for reparations should the government agree to pay them. The U.S. government is considering asking black Americans on federal forms, including the census, whether their ancestors were enslaved. In a proposed update to how the government tracks Americans' race and ethnicity, the Biden administration is asking the public for input on how it might go about differentiating black people who are descendants of slaves in America from those whose families arrived more recently as immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, and other countries. The idea of adding more detailed categories to the census has been gaining currency among some Black Americans who say society too often conflates their experiences with those of Black immigrants who only started moving to the United States in meaningful numbers in the past few decades. Roughly one in five Black people in the United States are immigrants or their children according to an analysis by the nonpartisan Pew Research Center. Supporters of the change say one reason they are pushing it is to quantify who would be eligible to receive reparations for slavery should the government ever agree to pay them. An effort to make such payments has stalled in Congress, though local efforts have gained some steam. In San Francisco, the city's Board of Supervisors is debating a proposal to award eligible black residents up to $5 million per person in restitution one of a menu of preliminary recommendations that include free homes, guaranteed incomes, and debt and tax relief. Research by the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and by researchers at Duke University, among others, shows that Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved tend to lag behind in wealth and education compared with more recent arrivals. America sees Black people as a monolith, said Chad Brown, spokesperson for the National Assembly of American Slavery Descendants, which backs reparations and is pushing for the change. When you say all black people are the same, you are ignoring differences in culture, ancestry, economics, and you are doing a disservice to everyone lumped into that group. The potential change is one of several the Biden administration is thinking about adopting to redefine how race and ethnicity are measured on government forms, which typically dictate how other institutions collect demographic data. The Biden administration has proposed combining existing race and ethnicity questions so that Hispanic or Latino would no longer be a separate question, but instead would be one of several choices on the race question. It has also proposed creating a new race question category for Americans of Middle Eastern or North African heritage. Unlike for those changes, the administration didn't include a formal recommendation about identifying Black Americans' ancestry, but rather solicited comments from the public on how it might do so. Supporters of the change want an additional question should a respondent select Black or African American on a government form where they could indicate that their ancestors were slaves. In its proposed rule on those broader changes, the administration asked whether the term American Descendants of Slavery or American Freedmen would be the best terms to describe the group, some have suggested the term foundational black Americans. The White House's Office of Management and Budget, which is spearheading the race category overhaul, declined to comment on the idea. Last year, California became the first state to require that black state employees be allowed to specify that they are African American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States on employment forms. The law which takes effect next year would allow self-identification by black immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean and require that statistics be published each year. A working group in California which is drafting a reparations proposal for the state legislature to study is looking at partnerships with genealogy websites including 23andMe and Ancestry.com to potentially help verify a black person's lineage should she or he apply to receive reparations. The census and other federal surveys rely on respondents' self-reported descriptions and typically don't ask for verification. Mike Gonzalez, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative Washington think tank, said subdividing the black population in the United States is a harmful step that would further divide American society. Government shouldn't be in the business of separating people by immutable characteristics, he said. Mr. Gonzalez, who has written extensively on issues of race, said he favors reinstating a question removed after the 1970 census that asked respondents to list where their parents were born. Using that information, he said, researchers could group categories as they wish. If the slavery-related change were adopted, it wouldn't only be used on the census, but also on forms that Americans encounter on a more routine basis, such as applications for federal student loans and home loans. So far, thousands of members of the public have left comments on the proposed race category overhaul. Michael Hicks, an administrator at a historically black college in Louisville, Kentucky, recently logged into a government website and typed up a 400-word comment in favor of the change for black respondents. Mr. Hicks said he became more interested in supporting politicians who more directly represent the interests of slavery descendants after becoming disillusioned with former President Barack Obama. During Mr. Obama's presidency, Mr. Hicks said, many black Americans felt left behind as their neighborhoods gentrified and their incomes couldn't keep pace. According to surveys conducted by the Federal Reserve, black families' wealth is less than 15% of white families' wealth and lower than any racial group. His election and his presidency was landmark, but it didn't help most black Americans except symbolically, he said. Mr. Hicks and other supporters of this designation have pointed out that Mr. Obama isn't descendant from slaves. His father was an international student from Kenya and his mother is white. If America wants resources to go to the populations that need them the most, we most accurately recognize who is affected and why, Mr. Hicks wrote in his comments in support of the new category. The government's proposal comes in the midst of a broader debate among black Americans over how much experience the descendants of people enslaved in the United States shared with those whose families came to America voluntarily. Many black immigrants say they face much of the same discrimination, particularly at the hands of the police. Black people from Africa were also brought to the Caribbean and Latin America as slaves but many of those whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States believe they should be considered a distinct ethnic group. That belief is based at least in part on limited data showing that black immigrants and their children on average find higher-paying jobs and accumulate more wealth than people whose families have lived here for decades or centuries. Several studies suggest that black immigrants and their children are overrepresented on elite college campuses, particularly if they immigrated from the African continent. Because the black population isn't systematically categorized along such lines, research on those outcomes is limited. There's still a lot we don't know, and it would be easier to start knowing those things if we could better document the black population, said Camille Charles, a professor of sociology and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania who has researched black student populations at elite schools and supports more detailed data collection. That was the article. U.S. considers asking Black Americans on census if they are slave descendants. It was written by Michelle Hackman and Paul Overberg, published March 30, 2023, and it appeared at the Wall Street Journal's WSJ.com website. Next, I have a story for you from the Guardian.com website. The title is, King Charles Signals First Explicit Support for Research into Monarchy's Slavery Ties. It was written by David Kahn, Amna Modine, and Maya Wolf Robinson. It was published Thursday, April 6, 2023. King Charles has for the first time signaled his support for research into the British monarchy's historical links with transatlantic slavery after the emergence of a document showing a predecessor's stake in a slave trading company. Buckingham Palace released the statement after it was contacted by the Guardian about the extensive history of successive British monarchs' involvement and investment in the enslavement of African people. The Guardian has published a previously unseen document showing the 1689 transfer of 1000 pounds of shares in the slave trading Royal African Company to King William III from Edward Colston, the company's deputy director. Buckingham Palace did not comment on the document but said it supported a research project co-sponsored by Historic Royal Palaces (HRP), which manages several palaces into the monarchy's involvement in the slave trade. Historians specializing in the monarchy's centuries-long involvement in the enslavement of African people cautiously welcomed the palace's statement, but said much more needed to be done. A spokesperson for the palace said, This is an issue that His Majesty takes profoundly seriously. As His Majesty told the Commonwealth Heads of Government Reception in Rwanda last year, I cannot describe the depths of my personal sorrow at the suffering of so many as I continue to deepen my own understanding of slavery's enduring impact. That process has continued with vigor and determination since His Majesty's ascension. Historic Royal Palaces is a partner in an independent research project, which began in October last year, that is exploring, among other issues, the links between the British monarchy and the transatlantic slave trade during the late 17th and 18th centuries. The spokesperson added, As part of that drive, the royal household is supporting the research through access to the royal collection and the royal archives. It is understood to be the first time Buckingham Palace has publicly stated that it supports such research into the royal family's troubling history. Colston has become a notorious figure since historians and campaigners in Bristol challenged his portrayal as a benefactor in his home city, culminating in Black Lives Matter protesters toppling a statue and dumping it in Bristol Harbor in 2020. The document recording Colston's share transfer to William III was found in the archives by Dr. Brooke Newman, a historian at Virginia Commonwealth University, on a research trip to London in January. She is writing a book, The Queen's Silence, on the British monarchy's involvement in slavery and its modern failure to acknowledge it. She was commissioned as a consultant by the Guardian's Cotton Capital Project, which has investigated this newspaper's links to the enslavement of African people. She said the Colston transfer to the king offered clear evidence of the British monarchy's central involvement in the slave trade and the importance of slavery to the monarchy's wealth. There is no doubt that the centuries of investment in African slavery and the slave trade contributed hugely to building the status, prestige, and fortune of today's royal family, she said. The profits from the slave trade and from the industries built on the labors of enslaved people in turn funded the expansion of the empire, which generated vast further wealth for Britain and its royal families. King Charles has previously made public expressions of regret at the suffering that slavery inflicted, describing it as an appalling atrocity when visiting a former slaving fort in Ghana in November 2018. In the speech to Commonwealth nations in Rwanda last June, Charles said ways must be found to acknowledge our past, including slavery, which he called the most painful period. However, he has been criticized by campaigners, including representatives of Caribbean countries where enslaved people were forced to work on British-owned plantations for generations, for expressing only generalized sorrow and not explicitly acknowledging the monarchy's role. The latest statement appears to represent a step closer towards that admission and will put a spotlight on the research the palace has said it supports. That research is the PhD project of a historian, Camilla de Koning. Funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the research is being co-supervised by HRP and Dr. Edmund Smith of Manchester University. De Koning's research will investigate the monarchy's involvement in the slave trade and engagement with the empire, It is due to be completed by 2026. Eric Phillips, the vice chair of the CARICOM Reparation Commission, which represents 20 Caribbean countries where European powers enslave people to work on plantations, welcomed the king's support for the research, but said Charles should acknowledge the monarchy's involvement now. I do believe King Charles knows enough to apologize, and should. 2026 is several years away and the issue of reparations is only gaining momentum, Philip said. As such, King Charles should extol the British government to engage CARICOM through a special commission to fully appreciate the impacts and legacies of the slave trade and to find practical solutions to address reparatory justice. Historians said the palace's statement was a welcome step, but that more resources needed to be committed to the issue. Professor William Pettigrew, the lead investigator for the Register of British Slave Traders Project, which is compiling a full account of Britain's involvement in the transatlantic trade in enslaved African people, said he welcomed the fact that the palace has acknowledged the importance of this kind of research. However, other major national institutions have themselves initiated, commissioned and financed substantial investigations into their own involvement in this history, he said the monarchy could lead by doing more. Newman said supporting the work of one Ph.D. researcher does not go anywhere near far enough. This is an interesting development, and the expression of support may sound progressive, but a full investigation into the monarchy's extensive, centuries-long involvement in the transatlantic slave trade and slavery and the wealth successive monarchs accumulated from it would need a team of researchers and forensic accountants fully resourced, she said. Dr. Halima Begum, capital B-E-G-U-M, the chief executive of the Runnymede Trust, a UK-based race equality think tank, said she welcomed the palace's support, but that a royal commission was needed to fully investigate the history and legacy of slavery and colonialism. Such a move could really inspire millions of British citizens and citizens across the Commonwealth, she said, adding that it could become a healing moment in which British institutions and the British people themselves reflect on the impact, the nuances, and ongoing legacy of historical racism in this country and continue to take the measures required to address its consequences at all levels. That was the article, King Charles Signals First Explicit Support for Research into Monarchy Slavery Ties. It was written by David Kahn, Amna Modine, and Maya Wolf Robinson, and appeared at the Guardian.com website on Thursday, April 6th, 2023. That's all for this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or check out archived editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank mm-hmm. you.